Take your Bible, join me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and this is an Easter Sunday meditation. Um, I wanted to take some time to think with you about the substance and reality of what we celebrate today and really who we celebrate. The uh, subject today is rooted around one central question, a defining question, get it right, it impacts everything. Get it wrong, it also impacts everything. What should have been a grand opportunity for a group of people uh, in Israel, around Jerusalem, at Passover, what should have been a great celebration, victory, and a life-changing eternity reality was forfeited and can be called truly a great tragedy because the question that was asked didn't get adequately answered. So my title today is, Who Then Is This? Establishing and Strengthening Critical and Core Life Convictions About the Identity of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 21, the beginning of Passion Week, probably Monday, Palm Monday, probably not Palm Sunday as we like to say, but probably actually on Monday, Jesus came to town He was traveling to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. People were laying their coats on the ground. They were singing Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Multitudes behind him, crowds in front of him. Jesus sandwiched as the servant king at the beginning of the week that we speak about the culmination of today. And in that week, as he came to the city, Palm branches laid on the ground, palm branches being waved for amplified worship, Hosanna being said, and Hosanna means save now, please. Please rescue us. Do what we need God to do. And their hope was that this would be the deliverer. And they said, this question being answered, this is Matthew 21, 10. And when he, and you're not there, just listen. And when he, Jesus, had entered Jerusalem. So this is Palm Monday. All of the realities that I just spoke of are occurring. All the city was stirred because thousands were there for the Passover. And this is what they were saying. Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The beginning of Passover week, the triumphant entry, resulted in a question, who is this? And the answer that was given to the multitudes was, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Was that a correct answer? It was a correct answer. It just wasn't the full answer. It's like partial credit, and in this case, partial credit results in no credit. I want you to listen to what a Muslim scholar said about Islam. Muslims love Jesus. We also love Abraham, Moses, and Noah, to name just a few of the other prophets Muslims revere. May God's peace be upon all of these great messengers of God. Which is to say, Jesus is a prophet. 
He's a messenger of God who had been sent to guide the people of Israel, they said, with the new scripture. They call it the gospel. The Quran, believed by Muslims to be God's final revelation, mentions Jesus 25 times as a prophet of God, a messenger who precedes Muhammad. He is a prophet. However, Muslims do not believe that Jesus was the son of God. Their spokesman says God is so powerful and self-sufficient that he does not need a son or any kind of partner. They say Jesus did not die on the cross as the Lamb of God. Rather, God saved him as his enemies were confused about him. Muslims say Jesus was taken up by God to heaven. You can have partial understanding about who Jesus Christ is, but what is necessary is a real understanding about who he is, his identity. And one of the realities of Passion Week is the reality of the question of his identity. And the triumphant entry becomes a tragic reality because the people rejected him after they declared his capacity as from God. So you, this who is this identity issue came up again on Friday when he was before the high priest, and the high priest was questioning Jesus, and, it's, and the high priest said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Who is this? Who are you? It happened in front of Pilate in Mark chapter 15. Pilate questioned him and said, Are you the King of the Jews? An issue of identity. Even the thieves on the cross, if you are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And even with the disciples after what we celebrate today, they were in the upper room. Jesus entered into their midst. They were startled. They were frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit, not recognizing who he is. So I'm going to talk about three things we're going to do today. Ask the question, who is this? Second thing I'm going to ask you is, will you do what they do, those who question, very pointed, is he who he says he is? Is he who they say he is? Yes or no? The um, flavor of this, the spirit of this, is a meditation that I was spending time on this week coming out of a section of Matthew chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Matthew chapter 24, the apex of Passion Week was what happened in chapter 23 when darkness fell upon the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, noon until three o'clock. Jesus has been on the cross three hours already. At noon, the skies were darkened. The sun was obscured because the full furious wrath of God was being executed and extracted, justice, eternal justice, was being extracted and focused on the Son of God, our substitute, the Lamb of God, darkness, blazing, furious wrath. I'm sure I've said this to you, but I want to say it again. What hell cannot satisfy in terms of justice? Sinful humanity will never hear the words, 
your sentence is satisfied. You're released from the justice of hell, eternal torment. You don't get out because you can't satisfy the debt you owe, which speaks not to the injustice or unkindness of God, but the depth of sinfulness. The idea that I can recover my status with God by doing good for God or paying the penalty of hell is an illusion. But when Jesus Christ said it is finished at the end of the dark three hours, when he breathed his last and gave up his life and he said paid in full, the resurrection we celebrate today validates the fact that what hell can't pay for, Jesus did pay for. So whatever the condensing of the fury, the laser-like justice of God, Jesus took it. And that's what's being spoken of in chapter 23. Darkness fell over the whole, whole land until the ninth hour, verse 45, because the sun was obscured, the veil of the temple was torn in two. So when Jesus died, the obstacle between people and God, the veil, which was high and thick, The rabbi said you could tie two oxen on either end of the veil and you could not tear it. But God tore it top to bottom. Because when Jesus died, the satisfaction was rendered and opportunity and access to God was secured. The veil was rent. This is the apex of Passion Week. This is Good Friday. This is what we just celebrated. This was the blessing that we enjoy. Jesus giving his life full payment, full satisfaction, atonement, so that we could be. That's how the week began. Jesus was buried in verses 50 through 56. A good man, Joseph of Arimathea, a new grave, a man who wasn't supportive of, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man. Verse 51, he was not in agreement with what had happened to Jesus. He had not consented to their plan and action. He was a dissenter, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he comes to Pilate and says, can I have him? And he took him down from the cross. He took him to his grave. Nobody had ever been laying in it or laid in it. And they returned and uh, prepared spices to anoint him. And then chapter 24, and I'm giving you the run-up, ramp-up, so you're engaged contextually. The apex is Friday, and now we're going to talk Sunday morning, the celebration that we focus on today, the apex of Passion Week, now the first day of the new week, which is the central and foundational reality of every week. The Lord's Day is Sunday. This day is the validation, celebration, not just this day once a year, but every week is celebration, resurrection day. That's why we worship on Sunday. He's alive today, every Sunday celebration. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, these angels, dazzling clothing, why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
Love that statement. Verse 6, famous, he is not here, but he has risen. The most well-attested ancient historical fact. You just read it. Tested by time, and there's a ton of evidences. He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men because it was the plan of God, and be crucified, Lamb of God, as our substitute, and the third day rise again, validating God's acceptance of his sacrifice. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And one of the validating evidences that this is true is because you have female witnesses, and females were not acknowledged as substantive witnesses. They couldn't bear witness as a substantive, impactful validator of anything. They weren't accepted as weighty enough. And here it is in the economy of God. We're going to pick the girls And the girls are going to bear witness to the guys, which is just beauty of God, alien to the ways of men. And then the section that I want to highlight, and this is the spirit of this morning. Who then is this? In the spirit of the Emmaus Road, verse 13. And behold, two of them, two of the disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Emmaus means warm spring. It's seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're headed home from the Passover celebration on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. They've just heard the report from the girls. They were with the disciples. So it's seven miles from Jerusalem. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place all of the happenings that they had been a witness of. Verse 15, And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now look at verse 16. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. There is no definitive inspired revelation to tell us the answer to that. But as you read on in this section... The seven-mile journey to Emmaus, Jesus was listening to what was troubling them, and then it says of them in this section, verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So they got a Bible lesson on the journey to Emmaus. So the seven miles... Jesus comes along as he's been crucified, resurrected, buried in Jerusalem. He comes out toward Emmaus, walking with these disciples, and verse 16 says they didn't recognize him. And so I want to begin by at least saying, why did Jesus veil his identity? And I want to propose to you that perhaps so the disciples would think through the scriptures and recognize the implications of divine revelation, what is in the word of God about Jesus, so that it would define their understanding and the true identity of Jesus Christ. They would not be relying on just an experience, but rather grounded on the acceptance of truth, rehearsed by Jesus through the words of God so that they're anchored in the conviction that the biblical evidence 
supports the identity and the reality of a resurrected Christ. I'm thinking that what God's people need is more than an experience. They need instruction from biblical revelation that will anchor the reality of who Jesus is. And my other hope is, as with them, look at verse 32, after Jesus left them, he vanished from their sight. Verse 31 at the end, their eyes were opened, they recognized him, he said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while we were while he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us and my hope today is is that as we talk about the identity and person of Jesus Christ from the scriptures that you'll enjoy what they enjoyed that the spirit of god would create a burning heart in you as he teaches you from his word that you too would be encouraged about who Jesus is and what God has revealed about him. With the result, verse 28, chapter 24, so Jesus is walking with them. He's explaining what has happened. They're explaining why they're struggling. He's talking them through the scriptures, verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going. So they got into Emmaus. And he acted as though he was going further. I don't take acted to mean he was putting on a facade. I take it to mean he was going to go further. And what they did was they asked him, verse 29, but they urged him. They constrained him. It's a powerful Greek word. It was like, you can't go. You need to stay. They urged him, say, stay with us. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. In other words, we're tired, we're here, you've got to be tired, stay with us. So he went in to stay with them. And my prayer is today that you would want, you would receive as a benefit of our study today, you would want more time with him like they did, because you have a greater appreciation of him. You would want, you would be compelled by, not casually, but intentionally, to be with him. And therefore, verse 30, you would get to share sweet communion with him. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, he reclined at the table with them. He took the bread, he blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. So they're sharing, they're communing. Listen, their experience with Jesus and his explanation from the scriptures prompted, please stay. It also resulted in a sharing of sweet relationship, sweet communion. It resulted in verse 31, their eyes were opened so they could see him clearer, so they could recognize what they hadn't recognized. Now notice what it says after they described their burning heart as a consequence of his teaching about himself from the scriptures, verse 33. And they got up that very hour hour and return to Jerusalem. Don't miss this. I did. So compelling was their experience that after a seven-mile walk, late in the day, the realities of their communion with Jesus and the realities of his identity was so compelling, they got up at that very hour and they went back to Jerusalem. And they went back to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And this is what they said. The Lord has really risen. 
and as appeared to Simon, and Simon Peter had gone to the tomb, verse 12, in this chapter, and they began, these disciples who didn't know him, who do now know him, began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Which caused me to conclude with this and my hope for you today is not only you want more time with him, not only will you share sweet communion with him, not only will your eyes be open to a clearer understanding of him, but verse 33, you're compelled to share with others the identity of him, the reality of him, his resurrection, his person. Because people who get it share it. They can't help it. Well, it's not convenient. We'll do it tomorrow. Now, we'll get up today from our resting place and communion place, and we're going to travel many miles because there's people who need to know what you know to strengthen their faith and to bear witness of a risen, risen Christ. That's my prayer today. Now, will join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Who is he? That's the question. From the Scriptures... Who can we say he is? And I'm going to track this idea of who then is this. We're going to move from the Passover feast goers who asked that question to disciples who asked that question. Mark chapter 4, context 35 through 41. Context is storm on the water. Jesus has been teaching. He gets into a boat. To go to the other side, he leaves the crowd behind, verse 37, Mark chapter 4, and there arose a fierce gale of wind. Fierce gale is the operative thought. You need to understand this is, this is hurricane. Turn asleep on the cushion, verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up, verse 39, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. Now notice the end of verse 39. Don't miss this. And the wind died down. Let me tell you what that says, dead stop. Grammatically, it means right now, instantly. So Jesus said, hush, be still. And the wind died down, you could say completely and instantly. And it became perfectly calm. No rogue waves No rogue gusts of wind. Verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith regarding who? His identity, who he is, what he can do. Verse 41, and they became very much afraid and said to one another, here's our question, who then is this? And then they add that even the wind and the sea, key words, obey him. So my question beginning today, and we do this on our Grace Church uh, membership application. One of the questions that you have to get right in order to be a member of our church is, who is Jesus? And I read those questions often. It matters whether you get that question right, because everything is defined by your knowledge of that question. Who is he? And that's this question. What kind of man is this? Who then is this? And I'm going to let the wind and the waves answer that question. He is the sovereign Lord of creation, that even the wind and the sea obey him. 
The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Radical, instant, total, obvious obedience. The stormy sea and the raging winds identify who this is. Who he is? Creation. The maker, ruler, and governor of every living thing. Period. 56% of the people alive today based on a not-too-long-ago survey, do not believe Jesus is God. 90% of the people in this survey, high 80s, believe he was a man. Little over 50% do not believe he was God. And those who believe he was a man, the vast majority believe that he sinned like a man. In the tumult, Hush, be still, perfect calm. Powerful, authority, sovereign, radical obedience. The natural world, every created thing. Take your Bible and join me in Job chapter 37. This is Elihu at the end of Job's journey of why is this happening? It's not fair. Before God talks to Job about God and Job, not Job's circumstances, but his reality is Job chapter 37, Elihu, one of his wiser friends who showed up to bear witness of what's going on, was talking about God and the sovereignty of God and the rights of God and the power of God. And he says of God in verse 5, chapter 37, God thunders with his voice wondrously doing great things which we cannot comprehend. God talks, stuff happens, incomprehensible stuff. Let me illustrate, verse 6, for to the snow, God says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. In other words, let the flakes fall, let the rain rain hard. God says it, and rain and snow does it. Verse 7, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Seal means tie it up so he can't work. So much snow, so much rain, I can't use my hands to go out and work. They're sealed like I can't use them. And the reason I can't go out because of the natural flood or rain or snow so thick and so heavy is so I can think about God. That's what it means at the end of verse 7, that all men may know his work. The power of God, the sovereignty of God in creation. Verse 8, then the beast remains in its den, so they can't go out either. It's too much rain, too much snow. Out of the south comes the storm, out of the north the cold from the breath of God. Ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. And also with moisture he loads the thick cloud, he disperses the cloud of his lightning. Verse 12, he changes direction. It changes direction, clouds, the moisture, the rain, turning around, watch this, by his guidance, his direction, his governance. Look at the end of verse 12, that it may do whatever he commands it to do. There's no rogue wave. There's no rogue wind. There's no rogue snowfall. The mountains of snow in the mountains of California are ordained by the one sovereign over it all. The floods, all of it, by his commandment on the face of the inhabited earth. I love verse 13. 
It's not random. Whether for correct testimony, the waves and the wind that stopped when he said, hush. Turn with me to Psalm 148. And this is a meditation for your benefit this morning that is designed to help you see, feel, and embrace the magnitude of who he is. Because who then is this that even the sun and the, or the wind and the waves obey him is the sovereign Lord of creation? You feel it in this worship celebration. Psalm 148, the pericope at the top, the bold letters in my Bible says the whole creation, key words whole, everything, is invoked to praise the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 2, praise him, key words, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. So all the stars, all the angelic beings, praise God. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, Lord. For he commanded and they were created. All right, so I want you to look at he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever, and he has made a decree. He has determined which will not pass. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind. Now watch the end of verse 8, fulfilling his word. Then it continues, who else fulfills his word? Who else ought to bear witness to his creative sovereignty? Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, young men, virgins, old men, and children. All of them fulfill his word. All of them are created by his decree. And John chapter 1 says of the who became flesh, the word of God, who was with God and was God, there's nothing that is made that he hasn't made. So by way of illustration and by way of the scriptures, who then is this? This is the sovereign Lord of creation about which and to whom every human being and everything created, everything natural, and you could argue everything supernatural. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established him in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless, the, bless Yahweh, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you who serve him, doing his will. So who then is this? The sovereign Lord of what you can see, the natural world. He's also the sovereign Lord of what you can't see. He is the ruler of everything natural and supernatural. The seen and the unseen are under the absolute authority and dominion of the creator king, and thus he is worthy of full obedience, visually and vividly revealed by the compliance of the wind and the waves. Let me put it this way. Here's a fact of reality. Every living thing is under the sovereign creator's dominion. And that includes you. So my question to you is, is he sovereign creator of everything, including you? Don't be a politician. Don't waffle. Don't change the question. Don't deflect it. Answer it. 
Is he? Yes or no? And all God's people who believe the word of God and the testimony of the wind and the waves and the other scriptures would have to say, yes, he is. Yes? Third question. Will you do what someone or something would do who understood that? Will you submit in radical, instant, and obvious obedience? If the wind and the sea do, don't you think we should? I want you to consider this. It's not just crucial in the order of creation, this identity of Jesus as God and creator and sovereign Lord over it all. It's critical to salvation. Listen to John 3.36. He who believes, this is Jesus talking, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hebrews 5, 9, having been made perfect, Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Listen to 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, and by this, Apostle John writes, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, you know what keep means. You receive them, you apply them by obeying them. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. We're not a truth teller. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, receives it, applies it, obeys it. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him, and the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Obedience is the demonstration of a changed life. It's the validation of a changed life, and it's reasonable response if you recognize who he is. Jesus said to as many as receive him, referring to himself, to them he gives the authority to become sons of God. Receive means to welcome him for who he is. The first 11 verses of first John, or the Gospel of John chapter 1 talk about who he is. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that came into being came into being by him. He is life, he is light. They didn't receive him, his own people. They rejected him, but to as many as receive him, to them he gives the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. So on this Easter Sunday, the question is, who is this? And one of the necessary answers is, this is the sovereign Lord of creation. And if he is, then instant, radical obedience and submission to his lordship and authority. It doesn't save you to obey. You obey when you believe, and then as a heart of transformation, you want to obey. Obedience is the natural outworking of your the people of God. There's something going on today that's an oxymoron, and that is rogue Christianity. 
Rogue Christianity, the word rogue means it's dishonest. It's scandalous. It's rogue because it's not submitted to the reality that ought to exist. It's not consistent. If you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, and as a follower of Christ, you follow his example, you believe and live what Jesus taught and walked. You're one who denies self and follows Christ, one who obeys Christ. If you're a Christian, that's definitional. Rogue means you don't follow that example. You're not following Christ or his word. You're not living what Jesus taught or walked. I don't know if you're familiar with a book called Unchristian, but it was an assessment, an evaluation of the status of modern Christianity. And here is the sobering conclusion of that book. Matter of fact, let me read to you their comments. In virtually every study we have conducted, representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of a transformed life. We found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-again persons. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers, by testimony, were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, take something that did not belong to them, consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescriptive prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said behind another person's back. Born again, not born again, no distinctive difference, which is why the title of the book is Unchristian. Now, this is not meant to bury you with guilt. This is meant to say that's a contradiction. Jesus is Lord, and he is worthy of our obedience. We live in a culture that seems to champion and promote willful individualism, self-oriented independence. I'll decide what I believe. I will do what I want. No one tells me what to think or what to do. I'll decide for myself. I'll please myself. I answer to myself. That's not Christian, and that's not reasonable if you know who he is. Many of us, I think, are like Pharaoh, who in Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? I'm not going to let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Let me tell you what I will not is, a contradiction to being a Christian who identifies who this person really is. So my first meditational thought for you today is you cannot square I'm going to do my own thing when I want to do it with the true identity of Jesus Christ. And if you travel through the scriptures and you recognize who he is, I'm hopeful that your heart will burn and also your heart will respond with conviction to say that stops today. Because everybody in the hearing of my voice or wherever this is listened to, has spaces and places you justify to say, not now but later. 
not this, not now. And on this Easter Sunday, I would, with all my heart, want you to say, I get it, and I will give it. Submission, obedience, and worship. No holds barred, nothing exempt. And when the Bible says it, by his grace and by his strength, I resolve to do it. Look back with me in Mark's gospel chapter. Well, you know what? I'm going to skip the next two points. You could, will you come back next week, maybe, some of you? Since we didn't have but one visitor, will you come back, Trayvon, wherever you are? I'll finish this next Sunday. This group knows that we don't always make it where we want to go. Let's go back to Luke chapter 24. And I just want to finish with this because I'm looking at the clock and I know that you'll be... You'll have to be Christian when you try to get your seat in the main sanctuary. <laughs> Don't be mean. So the final thing the, would have been the fourth thing that I would want you to consider about his identity is really revealed in the content of the first section which we read in Luke 24 and that was the testimony of the women. And the testimony of the women is the tomb is empty. They, uh, they remembered his words, verse 9, chapter 24, we read it, returned from the tomb, reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Verse 10, now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them. So this is a host of women disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, and they were telling these things to the apostles. And what were they telling? The tomb is empty. We saw these two guys with blazing clothes. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said, Matthew says. What he promised, he has done. So their report, who then is this, the answer to that would be he is the undeniable. Here's my final point. He's the undeniable defeater of death. He is the undeniable defeater of death and the giver of life. Who is this? Well, verse 7, he's the son of man who offered his life and has been raised to life. He's not here. He is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. He's the Son of Man, which means He's the representative of men. He's the human representative, the second Adam, who endured what we deserved. He substituted and He satisfied. And the result of that is we have the blessings of God available through Jesus Christ. I'm just one passage so you don't fight your fellow churchmates getting into your pew. This is Acts 13. I just want to follow up with this. Acts 13, Paul's testimony, who is this? Because he's asked to testify on the first missionary journey as to who Jesus is. And Paul testified of Jesus, and Peter did too, but we don't have time to read that today. Acts 13.30, Paul said, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's his resurrection appearances, over 500. He validated 
his resurrection, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. So the the validated eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, the one God raised from the dead, are proclaiming the good news, verse 32, of which he's a part. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. In other words, everything that God had promised is guaranteed to be satisfied in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. The father talking about the son, Jesus Christ. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. Here's the key thought I want to leave with you. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then he says, listen, uh, I'm not going to allow the Holy One to undergo decay for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, went, underwent decay. Jesus, no decay. David, decay. Verse 38. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, because he was raised, verse 38, Acts 13, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believed is freed from all things. Sins penalty, sins powers, ultimately sins presence. You're freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The undeniable defeater of death, as testified to by Mary and her friends, the women. He's alive, and because he's alive, and because God raised him from the dead, you enjoy the sure mercies of David. You can go back to Psalm 89, and Psalm 89 is God's promise to David to say, I'm going to elevate your seed to the throne, and I'm going to defeat and vanquish all your enemies. Your kingdom will be blessed, it'll be unshakable, it'll be forever. If you are a believer in the undeniable death defeater, the one God raised from the dead, you enter in by that promise to the sure mercies of God, vanquishing your enemies, talking about your spiritual enemy, talking about ultimately the wicked that he delivers us from, and we enjoy the abundance of the kingdom of God promised to David and realized in the Son of God, the seed of David, Jesus Christ. And therefore, you enjoy forgiveness, freedom. You are justified, declared righteous, released from your death, free, and guaranteed a life you couldn't imagine. And it starts the day you believe because of the promise that he lives and God raised him from the dead. I truly hate to slam that into the end. But please don't go home today and miss the fact that if the women were here, they would say he defeated death. We saw it, we believe it, and Paul would say because he did, it changes everything. Verse 11, chapter 24, but these words when reported to the disciples appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Isn't it funny that you can be a disciple? Actually, you should probably say sad and not believe. 
the testimony of Jesus Christ. Don't doubt. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he can do. The tomb is empty. He's alive. You enjoy the sure promises of God and the freedom that was secured when he substituted your place so that you could have life and enjoy the fruit of his righteousness. Can you say amen to that? He is risen. Yes, he is.